Hey, this is Machine Meets World from Infinia ML. I'm James Kotecki, and we're talking artificial intelligence live with my guest, the director of Cognizance Center for the Future of Work, Ben Pring. Ben, welcome. Hi, James. Great to see you. Uh, it's great to be chatting with you again. We chatted about four years ago, back when I was at a different AI company, and you've been in this space for a while thinking about the future of work. Your title is cool. Your title is futurist. Uh, maybe we can start with that. What does a futurist do? What does that mean? I'm still trying to work that out, James. I don't particularly like that title myself. It sounds a bit uh, pretentious, I always think. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been an industry analyst, a tech analyst for you know 35 years now. I was at Gartner for many years. Uh, and I still think of myself in a way as an analyst uh, even though I'm now working for a vendor for, for Cognizant. We still act, my team, the Center for the Future of Work, we still really act like independent analysts. But, you know, looking at technology, in this particular gig, we're trying to look a little bit further down the road. I mean, a Gartner analyst typically is kind of looking more at the here and now, you know, contract terms, vendor selection, stuff like that. We tend to look a little bit further down the road at um, uh, things that are coming towards our clients, perhaps on the edge of their radar. So yeah, it's great fun. And um, as I say, I don't particularly like the term, but uh, as you say, it's, it does sound quite cool. <laughs> it sounds cool. Um, and so uh, you're, we're here to talk about in part your new report, which is about uh, what happens after the virus. Mm. But I want to start actually by contextualizing it a little bit further back to a book that you wrote three or four years ago. And I'm going to read the title to make sure I get it specifically right. What to do when machines do everything, how to get ahead in a world of AI algorithms, bots, and big data. So this is an AI show, obviously. So what did you mean when you said everything, as in machines can do everything in the title? What did everything mean when you wrote that three or four years ago? And what does everything mean today? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great way of phrasing that question. Um, I suppose, to be honest, there was a little bit of clickbait in that. There was a little bit of uh, um, uh, exaggeration in that. I suppose if we titled the book, What to Do When Machines Do 10% of Your Work, <laughs> it wouldn't have been quite interesting. Um, I mean, really what we were trying to do then, James, was to tell people, and remember, this is you know four years ago, we started researching it and writing it about six years ago, was to kind of really signal to the clients that we work with, you know, big corporations, big banks, big airlines, big government departments, that, that what was sort of bubbling up that perhaps people were kind of hearing about, um, you know, and obviously we'd all been talking about, you know, AI in the movies and in books for, for a million years, but we were trying to signal that this was becoming something that corporations should take seriously that it wasn't kind of fringe, it wasn't sci-fi anymore. It was gonna be a critical determining factor between people that could kind of become really digitally enabled, really move into the future of their work and people who are companies who were perhaps just sort of, you know, wandering along, just thinking this was something they could continue to ignore. So the, the title was deliberately provocative. Anybody who read the book, once you got a couple of pages into it, you realized that we weren't actually saying everything. And in fact, we quite strongly contrasted our view of the, the impact of automation in terms of substitution on human labor with a famous report that many people all know that came out of Oxford University in 2013 yeah. when people they said 47% of jobs will go away. We never bought that logic. And we were sort of saying that 
that in a way, you know, and you know, with all due respect, from our perspective, was a bit of a head fake. Uh, that implied a a very short-term, rapid, historically unprecedented collapse in employment. But in reality, what was going to happen was fundamental change, incremental change, developmental change, bubbling up, becoming more and more important for big businesses and changing every job, um, but not in that dramatic way. But at the same time, if you if you thought because it wasn't going to happen in that dramatic way, you could ignore it, that would be a mistake too. So we were trying to navigate, if you like, tread that fine line between signaling this was a big deal not trying to scare the horses, but telling companies that they had to take this seriously. It was going to be a material part of competition for them going forward. And have the last four years, so let, let's let's go right to the beginning of the pandemic, but not to the pandemic yet. Yep. Up until February 2020, did the evolution of AI in business surprise you? Did it go about as what you had predicted? Yeah, I don't think it surprises. I think the amount of interest that, you know, we generated through the book, obviously a lot of other people generated the amount of attention and invites to speak at events, you know, in person before this and now on, on, on platforms like this. I mean, it's been an extraordinary ride for us, for us authors, the three authors of the book, just personally, and then cognizant more broadly as we built out capabilities to kind of make real some of the ideas that we've talked about helping our clients you know turn ideas into reality i mean it's been an incredible ride and it still continues to be an incredible ride people are still fascinated by this and i think more and more people have got this memo now so the everything is still somewhat provocative but boy the amount of activity that's going on uh, and I'm sure many people, you know, on, on this session today are either involved in that as practitioners or, or as consumers or as uh, analysts watching it. I mean, I think we'd be a hard person to say uh, and argue convincingly that, you know, AI was just hype and we're in this, you know, Gartner-style trough of disillusionment and nothing's happening. I, I don't think any anything could be further from the truth. So you mentioned uh, mass unemployment as something that, you know, the other report kind of uh, talked about, but you kind of didn't believe in as much. And you do address this idea in the book of, you know, some people think there's going to be massive job losses because of AI. You had uh, a different perspective on that. But I want to flash forward to now mm. where we do see massive unemployment, not because of AI, but because yeah. of COVID-19. Yeah. And at this, so many, many people are out of work. People, some people think that that will increase the amount of AI and automation even faster. Um, as companies adapt to not needing as many people or never having needed those people in the first place. And now they're gone. Mm. So they can just put the machines in. And on the other side of that, we see all these processes like unemployment claims, for example, that are rooted in computer technology that's <laughs> decades out of date yeah. and obviously needs some kind of uh, massive upgrade, maybe with the help of something like AI. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder how you think about AI now in the context of, of COVID-19 and the employment and economic situation. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good time to be a COBOL programmer, isn't it? Um, right. Coming back out of the woodwork. Um, well, no, I think, in fact, I mean, a lot of people have kind of come to a similar conclusion that COVID is sort of almost acting as an accelerant into a future that, you know, people like me, other futurists have been talking about for a while. And I think, in fact, it's quite, quite interesting to think again about this notion of man versus machine the human versus the machine in the context of what's going out. Because I think you can see the two 
sort of sides of the argument becoming quite refined and quite sharp. On the one hand, certainly there's a very strong argument that in, uh, you know, in a viral age, the viruses that software get are kind of less harmful than the viruses that people get. I mean, you could debate that, but um, uh, so there's a, there's a added impetus and added catalytical factor to deploy bots uh, within call centers, within processing centers, and like you say, to, to really do scale digital transformation of stuff that hadn't been trans, uh, transformed and now we can, we can see is really inadequate, really not fit for purpose in the modern world, particularly at a time of crisis like this. The other end of the continuum, the other side of the argument though, which is counter to that argument, I think is you can already begin to see the optics of big companies crafting their marketing messages around the notion that we're bringing people back into the workforce. I mean, I'm sure everybody you know, saw within days of COVID you know, becoming real before our eyes, all the ads on TV, car companies, banks, you know, we're all in this together. It was incredible how, you know, the messaging coalesced around that. I think very soon the messaging is going to coalesce around, you know, we've brought back 10,000 people to work. We've brought back 20,000 people to work. And there'll be competitive upside and differentiation for that. And if the messaging doesn't tally with the fact, well, we've just laid off 10,000 people in our, you know, in our data center or our, um, our help desk or in our, customer service desk through the use of you know bots in essence I think that's going to be uh, a tricky message and, and perhaps may inflame obviously what is a very combustible uh, period of time for us all as um, you know more people are uh, you know uh, quite rightly realizing that one of the characteristics of this increasingly technological age that we live in is this sort of notion of platform-based economics winner takes all economics and we can see the winners who have leveraged data leveraged ai leveraged next generation technology kind of getting wealthier and wealthier and more and more powerful and and pre-digital people analog people struggling to keep up with that and i think that explains a lot of what's kind of going on at the moment so that question is a complicated one to answer and i can I can imagine there are a lot of kind of boardroom people thinking that through at the moment and perhaps the sequencing of how that plays out. And beyond the idea, just the optics of bringing people back is the question of does this stuff work without people in the mix, right? Without a human in the loop oftentimes. Yeah. Are we really ready for prime time where we can automate vast swaths of the American workforce or does the technology still rely on human input, maybe in different ways than uh, we might have been expecting or having before, but in terms of making sure the data going in and the data coming out is actually accurate, this stuff is still obviously very reliant on, on people for a good deal of that, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, there's no doubt. I, I mean, I think the whole notion that, again, this goes back to our argument in our What to Do When Machines Do Everything book, the, the notion that this this you know, huge scale overnight sudden replacement of, of people with machines, I, I don't think is accurate. However, I mean, what you can see, and again, people who are close to this will be seeing this, um, just as one example, and it's, it's, a, it's a real drag, I can't mention the name of this company, it's kind of still a, a stealth company, but I got, I got a demo of a 
what I would consider probably the most sophisticated um, machine learning based call agent technology that I that I've seen, and I've seen a lot. And this this really kind of blew my mind in a way because because the way the the vendor who will be coming out of stealth soon was pitching this was that the technology was in essence a coach to the human. And for people of my vintage, you may remember a movie called Broadcast News from the 1980s with William Hurt. It was based in a kind of TV studio uh, where people had the, the presenters, as they do today, you know, have talk back in their ears. So the producer is talking to them, saying, you know, go to the advert break now. This was basically an ML version of that. So, so the human could basically have a much more intelligent-based conversation huh. With the with the with the customer, and it was so good and it was so powerful that as I came away from that meeting and I put that in my head together with the advancements in CGI and the notion of avatars and the notion of you know on the dark edge of that deep fakes, I mean I could begin to see very very clearly that that coaching would soon overwhelm the person. And the ability to replace that person with a CGI kind of avatar-based version of a call uh, uh, center right. agent. I mean, that, that, to be honest with you, James, uh, to be honest with you, that really kind of scared me a little bit because that was perhaps this more dystopian view, which, you know, we've all kind of processed through that in our minds and perhaps damped that theory down and damped that kind of dark vision down a little bit. But it sort of came back almost like a wave, another wave coming back into my mind. Uh, it was really quite powerful. Huh. I wanted to stay on the topic of AI. Uh, but first, I want to bring in the after the virus report, which yeah. is the most recent thing that you've done, and talk a lot more about this in the context of COVID-19 and the pandemic. Um, there were, I think, nine sections of this report, um, talked about everything from uh, air travel to the future of you know working at home and all these things. One of the sections that caught my eye the most, especially when it relates to AI, was about privacy and security. Mm -hmm. And I want uh, maybe just have you summarize a little bit what that section was positing. Yeah, obviously this is again for people. I'm sure many people on the call today on the session today. I mean, we've been sort of trying to navigate our way through this data-centric world that obviously we're increasingly living in where the power of data is is you know obviously clearly uh, more and more that key determinant of success or failure but also recognizing there's a you know very real dark side uh to the power of data and um we wrote the, the book we wrote before the machines book was a book called Code Halos. This was in 2014 when, again, we were sort of calling out the role of data, the importance of data. And we wrote a chapter in that book called The Dark Side of the Code Halo. And we laid out a, a thesis, an argument that really sort of said that there would be competitive advantage for businesses to treat data well, to maintain privacy, not to be creepy in the way that we put it and the the companies that did act uh, you know perhaps in, in less honorable ethical ways would be punished by the market fast forward to 2020 there's been very little punishment for any businesses using data 
abusing data, misusing data in any, any particular way. And so that thesis, I don't think, has come true quite in the way that we imagined. You know, perhaps that's, you know, we're still working our way into that. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about ethical AI going forward. But my particular um, perspective on this has sort of changed quite a bit. I don't know whether you can see over my shoulder in my office here. Uh, there's a book called Surveillance Capitalism, uh, written by a Harvard Business uh, School professor called Shazana Zuboff. I think if people haven't read this, they should. It's one of the most important books of our time uh, because Zuboff really changed the way I think about this. And the, the key sort of metaphor that she laid out in the book, which I think is completely central to what's going on at the moment, again, with COVID as is, is accelerant, is that the way that data has been treated and monetized by, you know, no names, but the usual suspects in the last few years is akin to the way that the conquistadores treated land in South America in the 16th and century, 17th century. And what she means by that is that the indigenous people of South America didn't conceptualize of land as having any value. And yet when these foreigners came, these Europeans came mm. and thought of land in a completely different way, recognizing the value of it, they basically you know, had the land rights before the indigenous people realized there was any worth to that land. And her metaphor is that's what's happened with data. Before we as individuals or before 95% of companies have conceptualized of data as having any real value or having any mechanism to be able to monetize that, the game is over. And I think that's very, very powerful. And then so relate that to what's going on with COVID and with you know contact tracing and things like this. The, the rhetorical question I posed in the after the virus report in this chapter you mentioned is, we may be healthy through sharing data on these things, but are we at the end of this process going to be free? Right. And I know that sounds melodramatic, but I do think the stakes are this high. I do think the stakes are this existential. And some people may have noticed that today is the um, anniversary of the publication of 1984, uh, published in 1949 on this day. And, you know, if you read that, I read it as a you know teenager, an impressionable, angry teenager, and I remember the the, the overwhelming thought I had coming away from that was, you know, how did that happen? How did mm -hmm. Orwell's England of 1948 turn into Airstrip One of 1984? And that always went through my mind. Dave Edgar's, some people will know his book, The Circle, which came out in 2013. Right. That was kind of Egger's answer to, because I always thought of that book as the prequel to 1984, that we seduced our way into this world through our use of technology and giving up the data that we didn't understand had any value. And now fast forward to today, we're sort of in this world and we frankly don't know how to reverse out of it. Uh, and I think this is a very, very big issue. And sort of things like GDPR and other regulation in other parts of the world, California, et cetera, are very, very early rudimentary attempts to try and get back on top of this. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the work 
but people of goodwill in the AI community, in the machine learning community, and clearly there are, there are many people of goodwill trying to grapple with this. But I think these people, the people who want to be on the right side of this in history, I think we need to do a much better job and, and work much harder to figure out this trade-off because the forces, if you like, um, weighing against us are very, very powerful, commercially motivated, motivated from national security perspectives. It's, it's going to be a very, very tough genie to put back into the bottle. And, and you talk about being on the right side of history. Uh, but as we know from 1984, if you win, you can basically rewrite history to say yeah. whatever you yeah. want, right? Every day, yeah. And of course, we see this playing out now in the protests as well, where people are being warned about using their phones, for example, in protests um, yeah. or showing their faces to um, you know, cameras in protests because that can be used to, to produce some kind of algorithms, uh, fed through algorithms that could then identify them later. Um, obviously, a few, uh, you know, for the last few years, we've seen this kind of technology in Hong Kong being deployed by police there to kind of identify people that the state does not uh, does not like. Um, and so, you know, but the challenge, I guess, is you know, you and I are we work at for profit businesses, right? We're in business to. Um, to be uh, to to make a profit and be successful and, and and move the economy forward like that. So how do people in business like you and I think about addressing these things in a way that is going to make a difference or, or reverse the course that you say that we're on? Is there anything that we can do realistically at this point? Yeah. No. Again, it's it's a, it's a great question, James, and it's sort of it's, it's one that keeps me awake at night, frankly. Um, well, again, topically, uh, people will have seen IBM's announcement overnight, um, moving away from the development and sale of technology to support facial recognition in policing. And I applaud that enormously. I think that's a very, very powerful statement uh, that the new CEO of IBM has made. And, and my hat, you know, my, my hat is, um, uh, <laughs> I, I take my hat off to him. Um, so I think, it, again, it comes back to this notion, and I, I, I'm, you know, I'm nervous and cautious about sounding melodramatic about it, because you're right, the commercial motivations to do these things are extremely strong. But I can't help thinking, and again, some people will perhaps like this you know, analogy, this metaphor, some people perhaps won't, but if we don't want to be seen as the cigarette executives of 2040 mm. or 2050, um, I think it's, it behooves us as people who love technology, who are in, in positions of you know, some responsibility or a lot of responsibility to use technology in a way that we won't be um, the villains in the movies that are made about, you know, uh, what went on now in another generation or two. People who have seen the movie Thank You for Not Smoking. People who, you know... Thank you for smoking. Yeah, thank you for smoking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even just going back even further, my third movie reference, you know, The, the Graduate, 1967. Mm -hmm. I've got one word for you, Benjamin. Out, uh, um, plastics. plastics. You know, I, I've been joking for a while now. You update that, you say it's algorithms. But, you know, the people in the plastics industry are not sort of particularly held in high esteem now because we can see the damage uh, that has been done, the, the, the waste 
uh, in the oceans that those people weren't particularly interested in, the, the sort of damage that they unleashed, if you like. And, and that's clearly the, the, the discussion we're beginning to have around some aspects of technology at the moment. The next book that we've got coming out later this year is called Monster, Taming the Technology that Rules Our Lives, Our Future and Our Jobs. And again, it stems from this notion that we, you, most people on this call, we love technology. We are, we're the original, you know, nerds. We're the original uh, Trekkies. But we've we've got to make sure that this is used uh, for good. This is used for uh, utilitarian good. And, and it isn't the source of uh, the worst aspects, our worst angels. That, that's the concern I have at the moment. Mm. Yeah, holding AI accountable is certainly a theme for for my company. It sounds like a theme for you as well. Yeah. How much of so? There's obviously, you know, I, I like to think conversations like this are part of it, where we continually bring this up, not just to people in technology, but to people outside yeah. the industry as well, to let folks know that it, it can't just be a few, you know, nerds, as you say, who are making all these decisions. Um, it has to be a society as a whole who's making decisions about this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then beyond the kind of uh moral work that we all have to do internally in ourselves, which is probably the hardest work that we have to do to convince ourselves and others about what is right and then to go do that. Do you see technological solutions for what is at least partially a technological problem of holding AI accountable? Yeah, and this is this is an argument that the sort of the Randians, if you like, um, will, will, will you know, propagate will suggest is that ultimately uh, there will be commercial motivations for good solutions to bad problems, if you like, and we, we should let the free market uh, to work those things out. I mean, and certainly, I, I, you know, in an area where AI is increasingly sort of becoming, a again, a central critical success factor, which is a funny way to think about it, is, is in cybersecurity. Uh, the sort of the, the the unwinnable and endless war between the black hats and the white hats, uh, you know, that's going to be really predicated on who can leverage AI in the best, you know, the best fashion for whichever side of that battle you want to be on. So, so for every uh, malign act that a bad actor, you know, manifests with AI, machine learning technology, the white hat's got to counter and, and, and get further ahead. And I think that is the, you know, as, as Aaron Levy you know, famously said, the CEO of Box, that if you want a job for the next few years, work in tech. If you want a job for the, the rest of your lifetime, work in cybersecurity. <laughs> that is the kind of battle that's going to rage ahead of us. Um, so, yeah, clearly each, each solution creates new problems. And then another solution solves that and creates another problem. That's the... Uh, we were sort of joked that the uh, the real mother of invention is things sucking. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's the constant evolution of of the human condition, uh, and and tech obviously is going to be completely central to that. But ultimately, it's up to you know, it's up to uh, as I say, people of of good faith to make sure that uh, uh, that we that we come out on the right side of this. And is leaving it up to the market and people of good faith enough, or are there policy and regulatory solutions here too that need to be in place? Yeah, I mean, one way I, I've sort of talked about this for a while, James, James, is that we've sort of spent the last 
25 years laying the information superhighway, you know, Al, Al Gore's information superhighway. We've sort of laid the, the tarmacadam of the internet. And, the, and really the next 25 years is going to be putting in place the stop signs and the yield signs and the traffic lights and the markings in the middle of the road so we can go at 80 or 90 miles an hour or faster <laughs> Uh, and still be safe because at the moment the information superhighway doesn't have any of that, uh, you know, real regulation, material regulation. And again, as I said earlier on, GDPR and things like that are just the first attempt to do that. Again, if you're an optimist, if you're a positive, and clearly we have to be, ultimately, we will work this out. If you're a bit more kind of cynical and skeptical and the glass is uh, half empty, I'm just always reminded of the uh the uh, the um inquisition of mark zuckerberg on the on the hill when uh he was asked what the business model was you know by right. one of the leading centers we sell ads you know if our, if our legislators don't really understand again in zubov's conception what something is worth how do they make the rules for that again that's a big kind of philosophical question for our times i think well, thank you for posing it, and thank you for thank you for ending on a kind of a quasi-optimistic note. At least. Um, ben Pring is the director of Cognizance Center for the Future of Work, and I really appreciate you being here, Ben. Great to talk to you, James. Please like, comment, rate, and subscribe to support these conversations. You can also email the show MMW, that's for Machine Meets World, MMW at InfiniaML.com. I'm James Kotecki, and this has been Machine Meets World.